Good morning. This is Gaming Perspectives with Saul and Jolene. And today we're talking with Stephen Turner. Stephen or Stephen? Stephen, right? Stephen, yes. 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 Uh, good afternoon from the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. We're talking to uh, Stephen. He's from, uh, I, I believe you said the middle of Europe, of Europe, of England, right? Yeah. Yeah. I come from an area called the Black Country, which is in the heartland of England. Okay, so it was funny. We, uh, I, I messaged uh, Stephen when on Facebook to get this interview, and when he told me he was from the uh, uh, the middle of England, the, the black country, I thought it was like, like, I thought you were saying it was like it was always dark there or something like that. I didn't know that that was like the name of the place where you actually. But from. I explained it to him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, red by night, black by day. <laughs> Exactly. I was like, I was like, oh, this got to be interesting. And then Jolie, I know, shut me straight. So, so I, I felt yeah. kind of dumb. Yeah. I, I'm yeah, glad but... I didn't tell you that when I met you because then you got, oh, I'm like, I don't want to do this interview with this guy. <laughs> yeah, lots of uh, lots of industrial heritage around here. Ah, I see. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some say that uh, Mordor was modeled on the Black Country. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be terrible. I'm sure it's pretty there, the Mordor. Come on. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. So uh we usually like to uh uh ask you a few questions. Uh and and my first question usually is your gamer roots. You know, when you were you know, I've I for some reason I get this idea that you've been playing for a long time. I mean, I don't know you. It's just a feeling I get sometimes from different uh, gamers. But uh so get, tell us your gaming roots. Where did you start? gaming in this crazy hobby i actually started war gaming in 1976 wow um, started with world war ii napoleonics then ancients and a friend of mine and myself we were looking at creating a fantasy war gaming campaign when another school friend uh, introduced us to this game that his brothers were playing at university uh turned out to be AD&D first edition Okay. And, uh, my my first introduction to it was you need a character, and not having a big <laughs> con- not having a concept of this. I looked through the book and I thought, well, I'll have twenty fighters, a couple of pe- clerics, a paladin, a couple of <laughs> rangers, a couple of thieves, and oh yeah, I'll have three mages. See what they do. <laughs> That's cool. That's a big group. And, and so I thought, well, that should be okay for me. And, <laughs> No, 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 you play one. (laughs) Uh, That reality was, oh, you roll three dice for each attribute, and that's it. And whatever your attribute is, is what character class you can have. Right. Oh, that's right. AD&D was very restrictive. Yes. Um, That that was in 1979. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I think, well, we we started a, a little bit earlier than you, and in our... In our area of the woods, I've talked to people. Uh, my town was real small. There was no no gaming stores whatsoever. And uh, my brother had got a photocopied version of the original three books, and that's what we used. And it was, I, th- yeah. I don't know if you ever heard our story, but uh, my, we were so, well, one, we didn't have a, a lot of money. And uh, and two, because we didn't have a game store, my brother was was kind of an ingenious person. He got a like a paper model or he cut out a paper D20 and he filled it with wax and he shaped it into a D20. And that's what we used to roll the D20. 
because we didn't have any d20 dice <laughs> yeah well, well when i started the we only had access to the player's handbook and the monster manual and they were the softback versions that were produced by games workshop oh wow i didn't know that yeah games workshop initially had a license to print the player's handbook and monster manual uh, but it was and, a, very and- much a softback a soft cover, huh? I wonder how much uh, they're making on the aftermarket. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've still, I've still got mine hole punched in a uh, in a ring binder. Really, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. But um, it it was very much a case of not really having any directions. There was no DM's guide. Um, right. We, we were reliant on what information you that was printed in White Dwarf magazine. Yes, yes, a magazine. Yes. So, what were your first games like? You know, because you didn't have the monster manual. They're not the monster, but the oh, GM's it was guide. it was. So, well, what do we do? Oh, so let's divide the hit dice by two to put them on that level of a dungeon. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's cool. And uh, it was, oh, okay. Our characters, the characters died. What do we do now? Well, a friend who'd introduced us said, "Well, you use all your money to buy them a big mausoleum." So our first map had all these pretty mausoleums drawn around the edge, <laughs> and, then, and, and, and then and then his character died, and he said, "Oh jeez, I'll pay to have him resurrected." And we all turn around and look at him and say, "You what?" <laughs> he saved all the money for himself. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. Well, luckily, uh, my brother he had the original D, which had all the little books in it and so <clears throat> he really he really uh, uh we played a few dungeons but he took us out of the dungeon early on and so it was like uh just a different world a different vibe than you know continually going into dungeons so that was fun uh so yeah. you go from playing war games to D uh what what other i mean you must have played some other rpgs while you're at it right oh yeah as a as- we saw new games appear in the shop, so Traveller came out. We looked at Traveller. Uh, we then dabbled a little bit with Rollmaster. Oh, yeah. Uh, then we bought into Space Opera, and uh, CNS Second Edition came out. And my, my group, we all bought into CNS Second Edition. Wow. Uh, and we all got so much fun out of this. Um at the the pinnacle was uh, one of my, one of the co-designers of CNS Fifth Edition, Andy Cowley, and I. Uh, we've both found ourselves out of work. Uh, I just oh. finished. I'd finished college at eighteen. I'd done a, a one year internship for from an American point of view, and we both had six months where we had we had no jobs. Uh, this was nineteen eighty two. Where okay. in the UK we were looking at ten percent unemployment, wow. possibly higher. And so for six months, Andy and I, instead of looking for jobs, were spending ten hours a day, six days a week gaming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of like one That's of those great. one of those gamer dreams, right? Where like you know, uh, usually. Uh, when you hit a certain age, I don't know what that age is different everywhere for every person you settle down, right? You get the, get the wife, you get the, or get married, whether you're male or female and you yeah. start, you start playing less and then you have kids and then you play less and less. And, uh, but, uh, no, that, you know, you're out of college, you 
don't necessarily have much to do. We were both 19. Um, yeah. And it was during Perfect. that period that it was during that. Yeah, it was during that period that all the first writings of the Dragon Reaches of Marrakush were done. Um, Andy and I brainstormed the language that we have, wow. that we have for the campaign. Basically, there was an old Dragon magazine uh, copy, which had got a whole article on how to speak Orkish. <laughs> and yes. we, I remember we, that article. Yeah. Well, we actually used that uh, article and we had created our own language for the campaign. <laughs> That's crazy. That's cool. Uh, I, I think at the moment it's up to uh, uh, 200 or so word vocabulary. <laughs> and, uh, we actually, we modelled it on German because we had some basics. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> right. So so what 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 specifically about uh, Silver and Sorcery was like so appealing to you? You know, because you, hey. like you said, you've, you've played D&D, played Traveller, space opera all these games what what was it that i i look i, I look at all the games that grab my attention there's Han master as well uh oh yeah uh modern games there's the dark eye there's uh, shadows of estrin they all have the one core factor is character gen- character development you end up with a three-dimensional character with a background right. with a history and you get something that you can pin on that character. And it's, it's easier to create a, a more involved backstory. There's a lot of games I find today where the characters are two-dimensional. There's, okay. not, you know, there's not enough meat on the bones unless right. you do a lot of work. And some of the games that I tend to like, they, they do that as part of the character generation process. Right. That gives me an idea why uh, CNS uh, Silver and Sorcery is because it's, it's always been that way, right? Because I've never owned an earlier copy of, of CNS. Yeah, it, it, it always was. I mean, not having played first edition, but certainly with second edition, you could start with a character who was a lot older than other characters. Um, it was also a case that there was never any emphasis on CNS being a balanced game. <laughs> okay. So you could have a 13-year-old character alongside a 32-year-old character. Right. With differing levels of experience. And so... Well, that, say, that makes, you, that makes you, it harder, uh, easier to role-play, right? I think when you start yeah. off with such so much background and stuff. I mean, you could have a 13-year-old character who is first level, but uh, the eldest son of a noble. And the 33-year-old character could be his uh, teacher his mage right right so um, so i i can understand that i can understand why people like those kind of games you know when you when you're the and when you're doing that creative creating the character process you it kind of gives a, a life of its own right it gets its own uh you don't you don't what is it i guess you don't the the player doesn't enforce his own personality into the character and they're always the same because it pops out, you know, the character comes out with all kinds of stuff already, you know, in his life, right? Exactly. It's like a, if you have a traveler character that uh, manages to survive character generation. <laughs> Which um, is hard. <laughs> it, was, it was first edition. <laughs> yes. Jolene, me and uh, Jolene, uh, we, in our group, she was introduced to traveler last year just yeah just a few months ago and uh 
And she goes, what? Your character could die before I even start playing him? What the nonsense is that? Yeah, It was horrible. My character turned out really bad because I didn't die, but I had no skills. So, it was a very... So what happened, what happened was the, the GM goes, oh, no, what happens if you if he says you die, you just get kicked out of the army and have and suffer an injury. So that's, she got kicked out like right away. So she didn't, like, she didn't have no skills. And they oh. wouldn't let me re-roll. What to do a different uh, one? It was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I did notice in um, the CNS that the character creation process is like 19 steps, which I thought was pretty cool <laughs> when I was looking at it last night. And I do think that that does make it very nice to have a backstory uh, um, because a lot, of the t- a lot of times with the games when we're creating characters – Saul's always rushing me to get it done. And, and I'm like, well, I need to kind of figure out, you know, what happened to them before so that I know how to play them. And this made it kind of interesting so that it gave you these ideas. Yeah, it's, I mean, some of the things that I like about it is you find out, are your parents still alive? Has one of your parents <laughs> died and have they remarried? Do you have half siblings? Right, and, right. And suddenly... That conjures up all sorts of adventure hooks for the GM because you can think of, well, okay, your character's the the son or daughter of a noble and possibly the heir, but you've got all these half-siblings who perhaps want in on the act as well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, and that itself is is interesting because like in most games, let's 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 you know, most uh, fantasy role-playing games, it's like, oh, both my parents are dead, I'm an orphan. <laughs> that's their story so because they don't want to deal with that with or they don't care to you know have that in their background but this in this case you have this this whole family of or this group of people who are either dependent on you or might get you involved in some interesting adventures yeah uh, the, the game i was running before all the pandemic lockdowns started with oh, my yeah. group i had one character playing a norman knight who could speak french and a bit of latin and his elder brother had given him one of his uh, castles to look after on the Welsh border. Uh, so he'd got his entertainer, and she was actually an enchantress. Uh, he'd got his <laughs> father confessor, because he felt he needed to confess his sins. He dragged, <laughs> along, he dragged along the 13-year-old serf who was built like the proverbial outhouse, and had and could stomach poison, so he needed him as a food taster. A <laughs> taster, that's great. And he he took along one of the uh, one of the liveried uh, cavalrymen to act as his uh, squire. Now the squire could speak English and French, but always but never told the truth. So there was a translation issue between the Norman knight and his squire. <laughs> So, because the, the, the Norman Knight couldn't speak English, oh, and, yeah, uh, yeah. so the the Norman Knight would say, "Do this," or "I want to know what they're saying," and the squire would lie. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> oh my god! That's, well, you know, that that just conjures up so much role playing fun, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, there's all kinds of you know, it's comical sometimes, and. and downright uh, aggravating for the night another time but but it was looking at so how what reasonings would you have behind having such a group 
And you just look at, well, what are the vocations that your character is? And why would he be in that group? And there's so many positions in the medieval world that those positions can throw you together. Right. So speaking about CNS, it's kind of like uh, it's a fantasy game, uh, let's say like Dungeons and Dragons, but where it really sets apart is where uh, D&D is like heroic or maybe even superhero game. Uh, does you would you consider uh, uh, silver and sorcery kind of like a try to be more realistic? Is that was that what you was was that be a good yeah yeah silver and sorcery aims to have a certain realism and historical accuracy as the foundation for it, but that's not to say that you can't do heroic with it. Um, okay. So Dragon Reaches of Marrakush is a fantasy campaign setting, but. So you can do the heroics in that if you want it with the high magic. Right. But you can also run it without the magic and just as a pure historical-based game. So it, it can cover a, a, a quite a range of uh, gaming styles. Cool. Um, but so the, the, you were... okay. so I was going to say that the, the biggest th- thing that we've found of, of the various editions is first and second edition, some of those game mechanics were a little unintuitive. And so there's two or three different ways of uh, game mechanics used. Highlander Designs with third edition brought out a more straightforward game mechanic, which we further tweaked in fourth and fifth edition. So it is now just a percentile-based system against a skill chance. Right. In essence. So was it always percentile or was it a different system before? Uh, again, not having played first. With second edition, it was oh, yeah. very much, very much a, there was a percentile system. Okay. But for combat, you used a D20 having to roll under a certain number and you had two colored D6 for the chance of a bash and another colored D6 to indicate whether you'd done a critical or not. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. And uh, so there's been some simplification of that. So that in actual play, the game runs a lot smoother than previous editions. Right. Well, I, I've never actually seen it being played or anything. And, and, and it wasn't until I, I saw your uh, a YouTube uh, video of you playing, running the game, I believe. And uh, and, I, and it was interesting because like, it's, a, it's a percentile system, but, but you also have like another 10-sided dice that indicates how... How well or critical or or how well, it, uh, it, it it's a scale of effects, right? Right. So, uh, one is low, ten is high. Whether you succeed or fail, um, because one of the things that we discussed in as we were looking at this was how many games do you play where it is very much black and white? If you if you're trying to find something and you fail your role, that's it. You don't find it, right? But in CNS, if you fail the roll and you've rolled a one on the critical, on the, the third D10, you've failed, but only just so you might find something. Right. And yeah, yeah. I like the scale the, uh, aspect of it. It's pretty neat. And if you fire in a bow and you roll a 10 on the crit die and you failed, well, there's a whole, whole heap of stuff that can happen. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, ranging from the bowstring snapping to the limb of the bow snapping, to 
oh dear, the arrow is still in uh, still in your right hand, but the bowstring has gone straight down your forearm. Ow, yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I thought it was really neat. I I I, I hadn't uh I I looked at the rules and I, I didn't quite you know get the idea of the that critical die. But then when you were when I was watching that, I'm like, oh okay, so it just it just scales whatever role you had before, and I'm like, oh that looks makes sense and it's pretty neat. Yeah. Is there a chart that goes with that die? <laughs> no. I I whenever we talk about percentile systems, I always think of um, space opera, which confuses me greatly, and I have to have <laughs> the rules explained to me every time we play, and I'm like do I have to roll high or low? And then my brother-in-law brings out a chart for where you hit, if you hit somebody and stuff. Yeah. So, Oh, when I used to play space opera, I used to skip the page with the formula. <laughs> yes. Yes. I used to do, I do the same thing. No, no formulas for me. I just, you know, I just put down straight, uh, you know, uh, penalties and, 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 and advantages and stuff. So, yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of games in the old days, I think, were were games that were you know I don't know if they were rushed out, but they were you know a lot of you couldn't really play test them a lot, right? I mean, you could play test them with your group, but there wasn't this ability to email it to ten thousand people and have feedback come back and and be able to you know have this group way of mm-hmm. of editing and finding problems with your game. And so that's changed quite a bit in. It in, has. Uh, uh, I mean, with, with with fourth edition, um, when I was writing the combat system, um, we had uh, groups in America, two or three groups in America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Europe, and the UK, and send out the combat system. It would come back, and I think I'd got to the point where we were we were on the twentieth rewrite. <laughs> and and the, the, the feedback was stupid. There were stupid oh, comments geez. coming back, and uh, so that so the combat system has only taken a couple of tweaks from fourth okay. edition to fifth edition. I mean, over the twenty years, there's been a few house rules that we looked at and argued for, um, but we're fairly comfortable with the combat system and. We're fairly confident that we're possibly the only, I'll say only RPG at the moment because I've not seen any other, which incorporates <laughs> target panic for archers. Uh, that, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I've seen it with uh, when I used to do target archery, that you'd have somebody aim at the target, they'd do, go to full draw, but couldn't actually release. They actually went gold blind. And you saw that the arms start to shake. Yes. And so we incorporated that into CNS that you can get mod- you can get bonuses to hit a target spending time aiming. Right. But you spend too long aiming, and suddenly you've got to make have to make con checks, or you get a severe negative penalty. Right. I like that. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah. But but it's true, right? I mean, if you hold that bowstring too long, you start shaking. You know, because of the, the yeah the strength it takes to hold that thing back not only that but a lot of times in some of the groups that we play in they they get when you get into a combat situation they want to overthink everything before they do anything and it's it makes it 
I'm just like, come on, let's go. And they're like, going, well, if we do it this way, and we have one of our friends, Chris, always wants to take and figure out if we go in this way, are we going to get killed? We should do it a different way so everybody's safe. Yeah, and I'm like, well, say, it's combat. So yeah, if, if if that was me GMing while that was going on, I'd just turn around and say, uh, oh, those orcs that you were looking at, they formed a shield wall and they're slowly advancing towards you. <laughs> So you know, but yeah, you're right. I think there's there there is those those players that are that are uh, in, in in playing board games. It's called analysis paralysis, where they're trying to figure out you know what every step they do is going to have what consequences. And you know, it does slow the game down. And when you're playing that. a role playing game, you know, it's it you can't do that, right? You can't you can't just think about every option and its consequences. You have to act and react, you know, in sort of real time. Right? That's the whole point of the game for me is uh, yeah. sometimes you don't make the right decision, right? You don't make that clinical decision. Yeah. That's a great idea. I like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, it, the, it, the bad guys. It's, it, yeah. It's always hilarious when you see a knight charging with a lance and they fail with a critical 10. And you think, <laughs> <laughs> what so can yes, I do to this for night? Well, so you turn around and say, well, the knights develop pole vaulting as a skill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a new sport. <laughs> yeah. So, so you obviously you liked uh, silver and sorcery from early on. You and your group of friends. Uh, how how did it become from a, a game you played to, wow, you now are the owner of silver and sorcery? Uh, it, it started with uh, again. It goes back with, to uh, Andy Cowley. He, he was on a, a message board at the time through his job at uh, a university. He was in IT support. And he came across Wilf Bacchus on the message board. And okay. they were talking about that they were bringing Chivalry and Sorcery back as a third edition. They were looking for writers or playtesters. And I got in touch with Highlander Designs with a view to writing some adventures for it. Uh, at okay. that point, at that point, I had a couple of uh, tournament adve- scenarios under my belt that had been used at UK Gen Con. Whoa. Uh, oh, so you're uh, already famous. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, I, I muted the idea of, well, I've got this campaign world that I've been working on for like 15 years. Uh, right. They wanted to know some more, so I sent them some ideas, and I we got a license off them to produce supplements. Cool. And so we, we formed a, a limited liability company to do that, and we went ahead. Wait, uh, what year is this that you're doing this? This is 97. Okay. And so we produced our first supplement, which was the Dragon Reaches of Marrakush. Um, I cringe when I look back at the, some of the production values because we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> I, I, send, send in the cover to the printers in RGB. That went well. <laughs> and... There's a number of other things that we were told by Highlander. Oh, you, you've got to have print runs of 5,000, so the individual cost per book makes it profitable. Right. My wife and I work in finance. I've worked in finance since 1983, 84. Wow. Okay. Uh, and the first thing I'm thinking, okay, can you sell all 5,000? Right. And so we looked at what can we actually sell? Uh, so our first print run was 2,000. Okay. And, and we were able to sell the 2,000. 
well, we, didn't make, cool. we, we didn't make a lot of money, but we had no stock. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. Right, you're not holding on to something that's sitting there, you yeah. know, in your in your uh, garage or something. Yeah. This had an impact a little bit later. Um, we Andy Kelly had got a kingdom they'd been writing that we were able to fit into the campaign. That was our second product. At that point, we got wind that Highlander had got financial problems, and they were touting CNS around. And we stepped in and made an offer, which was accepted. And as part of that deal, uh, he said, oh, there's a couple of pallets of stock that that you can have as well. <laughs> you didn't know about that, pallets? Oh, we, we have a couple of pallets of stock. Not a problem. <laughs> Bearing in mind at this point, I was uh, an export credit manager and I had got, got a documentation department under my belt that I was supervising. Okay. And we were, we, were, we were doing 400 million pounds of chemical exports a year. So, oh, I, so I, I got an idea of pallet sizing, fine. <laughs> so I got a couple of mates together in readiness for the lorry to come along so we could handball two pallets, which I expected to be about, about a metre and a half high. Right, right, right. Yeah, about, say, about four foot high. Yeah, yeah. that's about yeah. a pallet. Yeah, yeah. I work I work in the grocery business, so that's about about the yeah. the power, yeah. depending on how you stack yeah. it and stuff. Yeah, yeah, what it is. Lorry turns up, uh, no tail lift, three pallets, eight foot high. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of stock left over. <laughs> yeah. So so there was three of us handballing oh these my boxes God. off the lorry. <laughs> so I guess you paid them more than just one drink. Oh <laughs> yeah, just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> my god you guys must have been uh sore backs there for a while yeah. so it, yeah we we sort of acquired the ip so so we we, ha- we owned all the heart of the ip and so we then had to look look at where do we go with it right and third edition had had some issues um that it had become generic it, okay. had, it had it had lost the the medieval flavor and so we, we we looked at putting that back in. Um, the first year, uh, Ed and Wolf both flew over to, from Canada to the UK as guests of our convention, and we would dis- we discussed things. Um, we produced a, a, a light version of Shimmering Sorcery, which was a forty-eight page D twenty quick version of the game, while we looked at developing fourth edition. Okay. Um, is, is that is that the one that's called Essence or something? No, no, no. That's, that, no, that. Sinus Light was um, something that we've got no stock stock of it left now, and oh, okay. it's not something that it was. It was a filler. It was just to keep the name out there. Right, um, I gotcha. And so Ed came over a couple of times and spent time with us, and we developed Fourth Edition. Uh, now, when you say Ed, Ed Simblis is the one of the original writers, right? Yes, the that's CNN? right. Yeah, he was. Right. And uh, we developed f- fourth edition. And rather than a single book, uh, we decided to produce it in three books, the similar way to uh, second edition had been. Right. So we, so we had the initial character generation player's book, the mages and priests book, and the game master's book. And each one was a hundred page saddle stitched, which in ninety eight ninety nine 
was where we felt we could we were comfortable going. And, right. And then we did it we did it all belt and braces again. We had we had two thousand printed. We had them <laughs> delivered to the house. Oh and my, and my wife and I sat there and sorted them all out, put a GM screen as a wrap around the three books, bagged them, labelled them, reboxed them. Uh, hired a Ford Transit van to take it to the freight forward yard. Oh my god! Put them on a pallet, manually shrink wrapped the pallet. Away you go to the states. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is like uh, literally, you know, uh, uh, a work out of your garage kind of kind of job. Or living room. Or living room. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you, you can see similarities to. Uh, original D and D there. Yeah, I yeah. think that's exactly what I'm thinking about. So uh, you said your wife was helping. Did she, does your wife play? No, my wife doesn't play. Uh, she, <laughs> okay, she would actually be a really good role player, but uh, all of the products up, up to about 2002, uh, they were completely laid out and edited by my wife. Wow! And she stipulated that she wouldn't play, so she could be objective when editing. <laughs> so she could look at stuff and say, "What the hell do you mean here?" <laughs> you know, the, there is some truth to that because you know, back when I was in school, I would write papers. Right, you always write papers, and uh, I would edit in my own paper, which, as they say, is the worst thing you can do. So yeah. you sit, you have anybody, even if they don't have any idea what you're talking about, just look and read the thing. And sure enough, they would tell you, oh, you know what? You left that a whole word or sentence here because I don't know what you're talking about. He didn't like it when I edited and his so, papers. Yeah, so it was yeah. terrible. It was yeah. terrible. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I persuaded my wife to be actually company secretary of uh, Britannia Games. <laughs> That's good. Uh, and I've so far been six resignations. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what year was this? Eight, was, this was in... in uh, 2002, he said. 2002? Yeah, yeah well, it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was 2000 that we, uh, we re- okay. released the first, uh, first volume of uh, CNS 4th Edition. Cool. And I had, a, I had a tendency that I'd know where I'd want a book released, so I would forward book the local printer. I would then tell my wife while she's in mid-layout when we had to get the book to the printer. <laughs> So you can't dawdle, dear. Don't dawdle. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, no I'm still, I, yeah, I'm still surprised that we'll be married 27 years this, this September. You're lucky. Uh, yeah, lucky she's man. a keeper. Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And then the fact that she doesn't play is amazing, too, that she's so committed to helping you out. Well, well you know, that, that, that's what I, 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 partners I have, do. I have, sort of, I have sort of seen a play. That um, when we were in the RPGA, or when I was in the RPGA, uh, she ended up running the RPGA stand at UK Gen Con. Uh, we went to the mass ball at the end, and it was a bit of a LARP event. Oh, yeah. And, oh, she, she played in character. Um, she, she started two or three rumors that weren't part of the script. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you mentioned RPGA. Yeah. I forgot to mention that is that you were like heavily involved in RPGA. Yeah. In, in, um, so what is, is RPGA? Right. The, the oh, RPGA. The RPGA was the Role Playing Gamers Association, which was organised by TSR, and it, in essence, it was the very first, I think, organised play scheme where fans right. of fans of D and D could join the RPGA. They could take part in tournaments that 
conventions. You could get uh, points uh, based on your on the convention tournaments, and you could you could basically go up levels based on your ex- the points that you gained. They were experience points that you got in the tournaments, right? And in in ninety two, I went to my first convention, which was organised by TSI. It was Games Fair, and I had no idea. First convention, no idea about getting into games, about running games, and there for the like three or four days. And you see the notice board where you can put your own game up. So I put a sign up sheet, and I got a number of players. And I ran ran this adventure that I'd run a couple of ga- times for my group, uh, a homebrew adventure, but I ran it off spec. I, I, I winged it. All right. And the feedback was so good that one of the persons was involved in some of the tournament side and said, "I should be writing uh, scenarios <laughs> for advent for the tournaments." So the following year, I, su- I coalesced this adventure, submitted it. And uh, TSR accepted it as the official Ravenloft uh, tournament at 1993 UK Gen Con. Wow. So you're a pretty yeah. talented dude, right? <laughs> Early on, I mean. I, 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 yeah, mean I, I, I still think I'm a hack. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, what I'm saying what? is like like almost all anybody who plays RPGs, right, at least at least anybody that I know, you know, they, they all tinker, they all play, they all, they all dream of, you know, writing their own game or, or becoming they don't a writer do it. of some sort. Mm. But here you are, you know, this is pretty early, 1993. I don't know how old you are. You're pretty young. And uh, you're like, you know. 93. Mm, now 31. <laughs> that's uh, 29 in 93. Won a that's lotto great. or something. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. you call it. And, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was an eye-opening experience because at the time in the UK, if you were writing an official tournament, you got invited to the DM's briefing. Ooh. which is your adventure has been sent out to all the prospective DMs and you sat on the high table with all the DMs <laughs> sitting in front of you. <laughs> and, then, wow. and they then proceed to tear your adventure apart. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> uh, it, I, so some of the rewrites was one of the characters was a Celtic type warrior and I'd equipped him with a B sword and the feedback came back. No, he would have had a spear, not a B sword. <laughs> so that got that got changed. Okay, um, but the, you, you got to, for the for the Ravenloft one. Though, I think there were thirty DMs that wow, ted into me for about two hours. That's oh amazing. Uh, but the adventure went through, got rewritten, approved, got ran at Gen Con. I then found out it had been approved for use in US conventions as well, which was nice. wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, following year, I submitted a follow-up adventure using the same pre-gen characters, but they'd now advanced in level, and uh, that was fun. That was modelled on the rhyme of the ancient mariner, and that got used as the member RPG members only tournament, and that had the characters at a wedding and suddenly finding themselves in Ravenloft with no weapons, no useful <laughs> spells, no spell books. <laughs> Wow, that's pretty cool. And uh, but that's in '94, and at that point, uh, I was invited to become an RPG regional director, and that involved promoting the hobby in my region, 
which at the time was the Midlands and Wales. And, okay. And part of the remit was to organise a convention in your area. The idea being that more conventions, the more promotion TSR could have. Right, right. That would make sense. And it eventually led to me being a TSR demonstrator, which uh, we would go around demonstrating TSR products at game stores. Um, Wow, that's pretty cool. uh, One of the products we demonstrated was Dragon Dice. Do you remember that? Uh, Is that that a game? Dragon Dice was the was the dice game. Uh, yeah, and, I remember uh, that. And the, uh, a friend and I were both TSR demonstrators, and we got the train to Cambridge for the UK launch. And my wife thought, "I'll come along. I'll tag along. I can have a shopping day out in Cambridge." Okay. On the train, uh, my friend Matt and I were going through the rules, playing, and Sue was picking it up, and she had a couple of games. We got to Cambridge. Uh, went into the main shopping mall where the launch was taking place and they spotted Sue and said, do you know how to play? And she said, yes. Fatal mistake. Never volunteer. <laughs> she was she was given a T-shirt. T- TSR on the front. Big, big logo. Yeah, of course. The, and we all had, and on the back of all of them was Fantasy Guide in 18-inch high gold lettering. <laughs> So she was hired. Yeah, she was hired. <laughs> and the, 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 what we found was because families were coming around the shopping mall, uh, looking at this game, being a bit curious, those with kids were gravitating towards Sue. Because, of course, yeah. Oh, the, she was, one, I think, one of the only females in the, in the area <laughs> doing this game. And... Uh, yeah, I, I, I've stopped playing Magic against her. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's I. I can't keep a poker face, and she can. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. That's good. That's amazing because, like, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but oh, how it was over there. But here in in the Bay Area and where I was from, there wasn't a lot of female players until you know I would say in the last twenty years, it's obviously gone up. Is, is it the same case over there? Did you have a lot of female players at your table? Um, we, we did have quite a few female players. And it was one of the discussion things in the RPGA amongst the regional directors. And we felt it was to do with the style of play. Okay. That we felt that US adventures were very much hack and slash, kick the door in, kill the monsters, grab the loot. Right. Whereas UK-based scenarios tended to be more story driven okay and the whole the whole style of play was you got a lot of uk players would play the role it was more theatrical right and and you actually did see that sometimes with some of the u.s players that would come over that uh, that i mean the the first the first scenario i ran at uk jenkin the 93 one as a writer of the scenario, you got to run referee the final, which was great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the final I played, that Celtic Warrior was played by a female player. Okay. For four hours, I convinced myself she was from Glasgow because of her, her accent that she was using. <laughs> Turn, oh, she t- was, was it really her accent? No, she came from London. <laughs> That's pretty good. And, and that sort of exemplified, I think, the sort of 
UK style versus the US yeah. style that we encountered at the cons. Wow. So another thing that happened in the US was the satanic panic. That was early. Though. That was earlier, yeah. But did you guys have anything like that over there? Uh, I can't say that. Not that I ever saw. I mean, the yeah. UK is That's fairly good. irreligious. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's kind of funny because, like, you know, obviously a lot of players here in the U.S. had that problem, you know, but me and my friends and my, you know, we live in this little town. I grew up in this little town called Salinas. It was an agricultural town that that were surrounded by fields of lettuce and cauliflower and all these things. And and though it was kind of a conservative little town, you know, we never, I never saw, you know, I never heard of anybody complaining about their kids you know, playing the satanic game. And I don't remember, you know, uh, nobody got their books taken away and burned and stuff like that. In fact, it was like, oh, you guys are home playing a game instead of out in the streets. Sure, you can play anything. You can play as long as you like. And then my yeah. parents were of the exact same mentality, right? They're like, well, I know my older brothers and sisters on the weekends would go out and who knows where they were at. But here, my my me and my brother were playing until like 2 o'clock in the morning at the kitchen table. Well, at least we know where they're at, even though their books seem kind of weird. Uh, yeah. These demons on there, you know, they're here home. So it was, it, you know, I don't wasn't really impacted by the satanic panic, but it was a yeah. big deal to a lot of places here in the, in yeah. the United States. No, I, I, th- I think the only impacts uh, I certainly had was parents not fully understanding it. And I think, I mean, my dad's favorite phase was goblins and fairies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I no, I, I certainly didn't experience any well, that's, of that. So that's good. Yeah. Good, good. So you've you've become a writer. You've you've uh, uh, well, you always always were a writer, but you've obviously worked a lot on the fourth edition, and then uh, you decided to come out with fifth edition. You said you decided to kickstart it. How was your Kickstarter experience? Um, I've I've, you... backed, I, I've I've backed. A number of Kickstarters, I won't say, because my wife might end up hearing this. <laughs> Good choice. Yeah, I, I, try to, I try to hide it from Jolene, but it uh, doesn't work. Yeah, the, the, I see it on the credit card bill. Hello. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, my daughter and my wife see it on how, many, how much less bookshelf space there is. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, but no, it, I'd, I'd looked at uh, a lot of the Kickstarters are backed. Um, Doing the accounts for a number of UK games companies. Um, there's one that I, uh, I no longer do the accounts for it because they've just got too big for me to handle on my own. And I saw how their Kickstarters went. So right. I was quite restrained in what we did, used as, as stretch goals. Uh, we looked, I looked at the position we were in with, uh, fifth, with fifth edition, all the material we got written. And the problem we've always had with Shivery Sorcery and Britannia Games is there's always been two factors that have prevented us producing a lot more material. One has been cash flow, and two has been layout time, with us holding full-time jobs. Right. Uh, I go back to my friend Andy, and I find out that he, he wasn't working. <laughs> he couldn't get any uh, sort of any financial support. And was looking at what what could he do, and I said, "Can you do layout?" And he had a look, and he said yes. And 
we, we then uh, looked, he, we had an estimation of how long it would take him to lay out the book. And I originally estimated 500 pages. Uh, he he wow. thought it was going to be more. And on that basis, we said, I initially had, had us looking at a release date in November. Before we went to Kickstarter, uh, Phil McGregor uh, was in touch and he said he was actually in the UK. Uh, we met up, had a pub lunch, and he was suggesting that I add another six months onto that time to give <laughs> us time to actually produce it. Now, uh, Phil McGregor, I hate to interrupt you, but he's in he's from Australia, isn't he? Yeah, he, he lives in Australia. Yeah, he's he, he was actually over over uh, the UK for to see some relatives um, or whatever friends. Okay. Um, and he's a co-creator of uh, Space Opera. He he. Yeah, he, he co-wrote a couple of uh, sector guides for Space Opera. Yeah, um, cool. And we, we chatted, and based on what he told me, I, I re- reassessed, and we said, well, not six months, but we'll ha- go for Feb. So we're going to run the Kickstarter in July and aim to get it to backers for the Feb. Okay. Uh, it turns out that uh, we are able to supply the PDF to backers and put it on sale the week before Christmas 2019. Okay, that's that's pretty good. Which meant that we had it to the printers uh, just before the end of the year, and it came back from the printers towards the end of January, which means we were shipping out to backers uh, first couple of weeks of Feb. So right on time. Right on time. <laughs> but uh, the, the stretch goals, we, we we had a number of products that we had had already got written from the past uh, that we'd right. never got around to producing. Um, oh. And well, I looked at them and I thought, well, we can utilize those as stretch goals. Right. And uh, that was what we did because we, we already knew we got the, the, the first three, the sort of trees and Craig Hill uh, night walkers. We all had, we had already got those written. Right. All that was all that was needed was looking what tweaks needed to be to bring them from fourth edition to fifth, right? And get and gain the artwork, and then the the one that we wanted to do was goblins, orcs, and trolls, and uh, Paul uh, Wade Williams, uh, Wiggy, uh, he was quite happy to to do that because that would have meant that our, our species guides, elves, dwarfs, night walkers. And goblins would all have been written by one person. Um, oh wow! But unfortunately, he had a stroke, and that then we then thought, ah, um, few few French words were spoken, and we decided yeah, to uh, we decided to do it in house. And what was intended to be a ninety six page book balloon to 196 pages <laughs> <laughs> that's only a little bit a little bit more than uh, planned um but it, 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 did, but it did mean that um goblins orcs and trolls is a much better book with there's a couple of adventures in there um it's all about uh, a lot of information there on having the having the cultures of goblins orcs and trolls in your campaign Right. Uh, yeah, I was disappointed. My my idea was thrown out the window very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I I was told that uh, no, you can't have goblins which live like Ewoks. 
<laughs> I wish you would have thrown those in because I definitely would have needed well, to yeah, those I, in my I, game. I had this forest, <laughs> yeah, yeah, forest goblins living in the trees, herding goats and making this wonderful blue cheese from goat's milk. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. That's like totally turns goblins on its, you know, proverbial head, right? <laughs> Yeah, but they didn't go for that. Uh, no, no, no. They, they, they said it's got to be a bit more serious. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's good. That's funny. So, so how was your Kickstarter experience? I mean, the, you know, I've I've yeah, talked that, to a few people yeah, who were uh, the, the, the ones, terrifying the ones, and exciting at the same time. I wouldn't say it was terrifying. It's you, you have to be prepared to spend a lot of time running it, um, right? Certainly, um, there are terms that we could use to describe how myself, Andy Staples, and Connie Spears promoted the Kickstarter uh, on social media. Um, it wasn't quite street walking, but we weren't we weren't far off probably being trolls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is kind of funny because I don't remember seeing uh, the anything about the Kickstarter, so I wasn't. Uh, oblivious to you, to yeah, you there was, uh, certain things there, there was a there was a couple of uh ca- cases where i think i was warned uh, <laughs> about the posts. um but the other thing that we did was i've i've seen so many kickstarters where the communication is once a month seems to be the norm um with cns we were we were putting out an update almost once a day Right, even, right. Even if it was only to say, "Hi guys, we're still here. We this is where we've got. Here's another picture for you to see." Right. You know, I, I've I've kickstarted a few uh, <laughs> kickstarters in my day, and uh, and you're right. There's a big difference between the kickstarters that give you that monthly update to one where where you get one like you know, even if it's just small stuff like you said. For me, it just tells me that the that the creators are really like excited about getting this product out, right? And I'm not saying the people who put out an update once a month are not excited, but it's like that little kid excitement of saying, Hey, look at this, this is what I got, you know, this is what would this is what we're working on or this is what we're doing. And I think to me that means a lot more I don't know. I just I just it makes me you know, I'm not happy, but it just it just gets me more jazzed about the product that I'm hopefully going to get. Yeah. It's it's also it's sort of once the once the Kickstarter is campaign is finished, then yes, I, the sort of updates ease off a little bit as we say, well right. this is where we are. Now this is the real production stuff. It's now at the printers or this is the stage we're at now. Right. Um and that that sort of led to how we've we looked at with our second Kickstarter. Right. Which I did actually find out about that one, and I did yes. start it. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, you know what's weird is that is that uh, is that I'm not really into that whole Japanese uh, world. I mean, I, it's exciting and stuff, but my brother, my older brother Felipe, who got me into this hobby, this lifelong hobby, uh, he really likes it. Right, he's always wanted to run a Japanese campaign, so I told him about it, and he goes, "Yeah, you know, he's retired and you know, limited money." So I go, "You know what?" And then. Uh, he goes, yeah, I'm thinking about it. I'll get the PDF. I go, you know what? Don't worry about it. I, I ordered you the book, so so uh, I, I you know I'm gonna get him the 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 fancy you know cover one. So yeah. So he, and then I go. The only obligation you have is you have to you know include me in your campaign when you run it. Yeah, like that's uh, a problem. Yeah, and uh, you have to run a game. 
Yeah. And th- this was another case where we'd thought about how we go about the Land of the Rising Sun Kickstarter. Right. And we had got the initial layout all, re- all done for La- Land of the Rising Sun. We'd had a lot of the, uh, most of the artwork already in. And so it was just going through, right, let's double check what's in there against what's uh, in fifth edition. So there's a, the, the rules are consistent. Um, right. We then uh, employ. We'd, we'd already looked at employing a couple of Japanese editors. Um, one of the complaints was, well, why have you just added these in as a result of some of the stuff on social media? But anybody in business knows that you can't really announce stuff until you've got contracts signed. I see. Yes. Yes. And as, as uh, so, we, we'd we'd employed a couple of Japanese native. Um, editors who went through it uh they made a number of changes suggested suggested changes i mean one of them was a, a single word spelt wrong throughout the book <laughs> that's good then. well that, that, that's pretty crucial sometimes but, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, but yeah that was ch- that was changed um but it was more a case of we had one male one female ed- japanese editors uh, right Knowing what the Japanese culture is like, uh, having a female editor was important to see if that was anything was offensive to them. Right. And uh, well, they, they worked like one is like a muse, museum curator or something like that, right? Something like um, that? That's what yeah. they worked in. Yeah, and, right. uh, and then, another one's a translator of uh, right. children's books. So they, they've already got some experience with uh, editing products. And obviously, they're you know they're immersed in the culture and stuff like that, so they they would yeah. be able to tell you what 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 either just doesn't ring right or what might be yeah, slightly off or whatever. Yeah, we 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 did get some feedback on social media. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and strangely, nothing from uh, it wasn't from uh, the Japanese side of things. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, shall, I shall leave it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I understand. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I live in the United States, and I live in a very liberal, I would say, area of of California. Uh, you know, San Francisco Bay Area is considered very liberal, very multicultural, and all this stuff. So there was some people who I remember seeing uh, uh, post uh, some stuff about it. And I'm like, you know, and I go, well, I just, I just didn't agree with them. You know what they were saying, and so I uh, was like. You know, I'm going to kickstart it because I think these guys are going to do a good job. So, yeah. so I, what's interesting is that Lee Gold, the original author, which I didn't know because, you know, th- there was no Internet back then. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to conventions of Gen Con or anything. Yeah. Was a, is a woman, you know, and I mean, yes. that's like a big historical. I mean, a woman writer of RPG games is is uh, that early in, in, in yeah, the I hobby mean, is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, Land of the Rising Sun first edition, nineteen eighty, and I think she was the first female writer of an RPG product. Yeah, and her story is kind of interesting too because she just was a uh, like really interested. I think in 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 the original CS, I believe is where she yeah. was like writing to him and saying, "Oh, you got this wrong, or you would change this, just change this." So they just invited her to do her own thing or, yeah. or help them write. Which so, is kind of like your story. <laughs> a little bit, yes. <laughs> Which is cool, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and it was it was great to sort of bring back and update and refresh 
um, an, an original CNS product. Like, uh, right. Well, Land of the Rising Sun wasn't actually a CNS product. It was a standalone game with the CNS rules bolted on. Oh, uh, okay. But, oh. Uh, but for consistency, it made more sense to have it as an expansion. Uh, in line with some of the things that we'd like to do with uh, CNS from historical source books. Right. And and I and for my uh, my, my terrible accounting uh, numbering skills, yeah, you got like a two hundred fifty percent of your funding goal for the, the land of the rising sun. Yeah, we're we're quite surprised. I mean, if, with with both of the kickstarters, <clears throat> with uh, with CNS, we had a target of twelve thousand pounds, which was okay. what we we felt that we needed to produce the main book, and one of the players in my in my group at the time had made the comment, you'll never reach that. Oh, really? Yeah. And then when we funded in 16 hours, it was, ha! <laughs> <laughs> you're kicked out of the group and you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> you're <just> dead. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> with Land of the Rising Sun, we knew uh, how much we needed for the print run, uh, right. etc. And so target was £10,000 and got funded in 12 hours. Wow. So, you know, what, what's, what's interesting is like these days, I was talking to Jeline earlier, uh, game systems seem to be like trying to make them as simple and as there's RPG systems that fit on one page. And CNS and even Land of Rise Zone is, is not like that. It's it's more, I hate to say the word crunchy, but it's more crunchy. There's more rules. Well, I don't know about rules. The rules are <laughs> yeah, basically pretty, pretty simple. In the, in the words of Gygax, there are guidelines. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's true. But it's interesting that you put out this product and where it seems like, you know, less is is really super popular and you're kind of to me, it seems like you're kind of going against that that tide, right? And and you're still successful though, but you still overfunded your both your goals. So obviously there's people out there who who love uh, you know, more meteor games, you know, more games with that, that have some Sort of substantialness to them instead yeah, of a it's, one-page it's, um, RPG. When we get when we can uh, release Ars Bellica, uh, which are the war game rules, the miniatures rules for CNS, uh, that that goes back to certainly my war game rule roots of the uh, late seventies, right. early eighties, where war game rules were a lot more involved, um, much more so than the most popular miniatures rules at the moment. Uh, my daughter, my daughter went to a couple of doubles okay. tournaments with me, and she she summed up the rules as move, shoot, kill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so your daughter is uh, a miniature war gamer. For a few years, I uh, she played an an alien race, shall we say, and uh, they were painted pink, ice blue talons, and purple carapaces, with little spots of purple glitter on the carapaces. <laughs> Um, I like that. It, and, and when you've got like a, oh, a my God. 13, 14 year old girl in pigtails and a Hello Kitty t shirt appearing at the table with these, <laughs> smiling meekly at these 15 year old lads, and uh, she then starts going for <laughs> their guts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that that's the what do you, I don't know what you'd call it. That's like uh, that's the perfect uh, enemy, right? The one that you, you kind of dismiss because of of the way yeah. they're dressed and, and and stuff. And then 
and then she just goes for the throat. Yes, it, it, it was it was quite funny <laughs> watching her having one of her big aliens chasing their their uh, heavily armored space uh, warriors around the table. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's, that's that's great! I wish I I wish I could see that. Yeah. That's funny. So you so you've been pretty successful with your kickstarters. Uh, uh, you have, for some uh, I don't uh, I don't know if. Of course you know, but there's a bundle of holding yes. that has a lot of your PDFs, uh, 5th edition, going on right now. So uh, even though you can't kickstart the 5th edition CNS, it's already over a long time ago, and, and Land of Rising Sun, you can get the uh, the rules and yeah. quite a few supplements. There's quite a yeah. few we're, we're, things for CNS in, in that bundle. We're quite happy to be part of the bundle of holding. One of the things that we did ask uh, was to sacrifice some of our cut to give an increased donation to charity. Um, the chosen charity is one that we would normally support with our convention, which we relaunched really in 2019. And obviously this year we haven't been able to hold it. Uh, and so we wanted to find a way to make up for it. I mean, the, the, the charity supports young carers, uh, children aged 6 to 12 whose parents have, are disabled. And those children actually act as their main carers. And oh my God, this charity yeah. tends to go around at birthdays. They'll go around in a van delivering birthday presents. They'll do the same at Christmas. And they arrange to allow these children uh, two one-week holidays in the year at one of their outdoor outward-bound centres so they can actually be a child for a week. And, yeah, right. and wow. uh, during the pandemic and the lockdowns, they have had to work extremely hard in finding ways to support those children through virtual means. And uh, so it was important right. to us to try and make some money for them. And Bundle of Holdings doing that. Uh, we've agreed internally that no matter what's made on the Bundle of Holding, uh, once it's been converted into sterling, we will, we will round that up to increase the donation. Very good. You know, what's amazing about gamers too is that they're, I don't know. I guess maybe we, as a as a group, are relatively yeah. successful, <laughs> and and have a little extra money because you know we buy games and stuff. And they're very giving. I mean, every time I've seen uh, bundles of holding and and like our drive through RPG has has their uh, relief I don't know, bundles or whatever. They do rather well, and I think a lot of it has to do with one gamers like getting stuff, like getting PDFs. But at the same time, they also like. Uh, supporting charities that actually make a difference out there. You know, one of my friends, he runs this uh, small gaming convention here in the Bay Area called Big Bad Con, and he, it's total, it's a total uh, for charity. All the money he makes, he gives away. Uh, usually, it's for Doctors Without Borders, but uh, he changes it every once in a while. But you know, and and that's and I, I think that's what gamers, uh, a lot of gamers, bring to the table is this ability to, to have a lot of uh, empathy for people who are not. Uh, yeah, as lucky as they are, and right? when we restarted uh, our convention, the Dudley Bug Ball in 2019, uh, when we were looking at charities to support, uh, my wife certainly insisted on two two criteria: one that it was for children, and two that it was life affirming. Um, you see a lot of fundraising for children's charities, which are not life affirming. They tend to be hospices, and right. Uh, children with forms of cancer but that some of the charities you, you need something that is, is for the benefit of ongoing life and that's why that's why we chose the right 
charity that we have it's it's a small charity it doesn't get any public funding but it does do quite a lot of good work and it's just, it's an area where children sometimes get get lost through the cracks well, you know, I appreciate that. That's a fantastic uh, thing that you're doing. Is, is is one is bringing attention to a charity, like you said, that it's not as as well known as other ones, and and two that their goal is to help people who are alive and 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 making their life better, especially in those circumstances. That's that's terrible circumstances, and I think uh, kudos to you and your group for for doing that. Well, I I, I was just looking at. Um... Some of the other things that uh, you sent over. Um, yeah, C- CNS, what are we going to do with CNS? Well, what we're, we're looking at, uh, at products that's almost ready to go that we may kickstart, which is the European Folklore Bestiary, um, which, as with the Land of the Rising Sun one, is written by Graham Davis, who many long-standing players will recognise the name as the co-creator of the original Warhammer fantasy role-playing game, and uh, right, uh, and he, he's got a numerous writing credits. But we we're so pleased to be able to uh, secure his services, and uh, we've we're also developing the Essence line. You mentioned earlier CNS Essence. That was something, right? The the Essence line originally was a bit of a joke back in, back in back in two thousand. <laughs> And Colin Spears came up with this idea that he could write an introductory version of CNS in, on four pages. And <laughs> yeah, we, we had CNS on four pages. We had Vis Imperium Victoriana on about four to eight pages. And we had these as free downloads on our website. They were, they were in two columns, smallish print, <laughs> smallish fonts. And uh, when we, we Colin had introduced me to drive through, and we were looking to start trying to get things moving again. I'd had I'd had like a few years uh, sort of break, and we were looking to get things moving. And Colin developed the four page essence into what became a forty eight page product. Uh, We we put that (laughs) on drive through as a print on demand, black and white, and. He followed that, that up with finally, I got off my arse and finally got his science fiction game, Rocket Jocks, <laughs> laid out, which used the same, same game mechanics. Okay. And we got that okay. illustrated by Lisanne Lake, and we, we put that out on drive-through. And he's now finished with Viz Imperium Victoriana and a small adventure for it, which were, we had as two social goals for the CNS 5th edition Kickstarter. And oh, okay. that's a Victorian steampunk type game, but using the essence mechanics. Oh. We're now in the process of properly developing that as a separate product line. Colin's working on a new historical stroke fantasy essence game, which will replace CNS essence in the product line. And it will properly sever the CNS from the essence product line. So it will just be on its stand on its own. Right. And he'll, he'll look after further development of that product line. There is a King Arthur product to go into that product line as well. Well, you, you seem like you guys are still busy. We keep, <laughs> we keep having ideas for the CNS product line as well. I mean, as well as supporting the Marrakush fantasy campaign setting, of which there's a 
right. a few things down the line, Kingdom Supplements and Adventures. But we, we've I, the, the list keeps getting longer. I think we've probably got 30 ideas for products. Um, <laughs> one of the ones we're talking about is, uh, wouldn't it be cool to do a historical source book on the Spice Road in the medieval and detailing right. all the kingdoms along the spice route. One of the uh, one of the writers and designers, core design team, Francis. He's for years he's been writing a CNS China supplement. Um, oh wow! That may well run into multiple volumes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, China is pretty large and it's a pretty expansive uh, history there. And Staples is chugging away at an early feudal source book, which will cover things like El Cid, Robin Hood, and all of that early feudal period up to about 1200. And uh, wow. then we, then obviously from that, you've got to look at the high chivalric period, then the late feudal period. Um, we're, <laughs> we're looking at a source book on early firearms. Ah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, that's true. So, well, so getting to the sort of 1400s, you've got early firearms. Um, yeah. Oh, that's going to be so much fun from a game master's point of view. Go on, f- fire your handgun. Roll me a critical <laughs> 10 on a failure. <laughs> you really oh, think yes. you those things. <laughs> so, yeah, it's because CNS draws as its root source material as history. We've got so much material to draw upon. It's sort of, I'm sitting here in, in, in our conservatory and uh, looking out the window and I can just about see our, our castle. That's right. That's right. You live close to... Uh... Probably uh, a quarter of a mile from the house is uh, Dudley Castle, which it first built in about 1080. Um, right. Yeah. Because I actually, I actually Googled uh, Dudley Castle when you mentioned it on Facebook. I go, let me go look at it. And it talks about how it was uh, uh, it was built and how it was rebuilt in, later on because it was at first built as a... Uh, a, a, a it was a, a Mott and Bailey originally. That's the, what, that's the term, um, yes. And, and that, that's pretty early. What, what, what did you uh, say, 1050? 1080. It was one of the earliest castles built because of the locality. But it was also where the plot to put uh, Lady Jane Grey on the throne was hatched. <laughs> Pretty cool. And you're right there, huh? A, a, mile, a couple of miles down the road is uh, where the gunfight took place following the uh, gunpowder uh, gun plot. Oh, so, yeah. Wow. Well, you have to center of all kinds of stuff right there where you live. Where, where we are based is uh, where some of the early... Uh, I. Industrial Revolution took place. That Thomas, Thomas Telford was uh, sorry. Abraham Darby uh, was born within within yards of where I live. It's uh, it's great. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty neat. Uh, living in such a, a location with such a large and and storied history. Yeah, 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 yeah it wasn't yeah, until yeah. a friend uh, came over. So Andy Staples came over in the uh, two thousand, and we were wa- walking along the. Uh, village uh, the town market and he said do you realize this has still got the medieval layout and i said why he said look at all the shop fronts and all the shop fronts have still got the width of the old medieval burgage plots <laughs> <laughs> well what an eye that guy has that's pretty uh, cool but again we, we've got georgian uh, buildings we've got 1960s buildings 1950s 1930s 
and most of the time you just ignore it. Right. Yeah. Well, that does happen when you're, you know, when you're steeped or in the middle of things, you know, you, you have to ignore it or else you wouldn't That's right. go yes. to the market, right? <laughs> you know, if you're like staring at a building going, hey, this is from like, you know, a certain time period and you're, you're looking at the architecture and stuff. Luckily here in where I live, there's everything's, you know, 50 years ago was <laughs> orchard. So, so that's, that's <laughs> So that's all I remember. I remember uh, coming to my my sister used to live down the street, you know, a good 30, uh, 30, 40 years ago. And uh, I remember, you know, driving through orchards to get through to buy her house. You know, and, and now those all those orchards are. And that was like, you know, there was one of the last few orchards that you could find here yeah. in, in San Jose. Now they're all gone. But uh, but you see what's funny is you see here as uh, is people's yards. There's like orange trees and lemon tree, trees and. And they're full of fruit, and they're like, I go, man, it kind of the roots back to the to the time when the, yeah. this was a uh, all orchards, but hardly a hardly a you know, 16th century building yeah, in sight. Or, or older. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, uh... So you guys seem to be pretty busy. Are you thinking about doing a Kickstarter and stuff? Do you have a bundle holding right now yes. for your CNS stuff? I can't imagine you, you guys are like uh, extremely busy um... doing a lot of work. Uh, I'm excited for your for your stuff that's coming out, and excited for you and and the work you do for for charity. I'm just to talk to you. It's been a lot of fun and very informative. And there's no hope for you doing well. I mean, you are doing well. So we we hope that people will support the bundle of holding primarily, so we can give a, a chunk to charity. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thanks, Stephen Turner, for giving us this interview. No, that's, that's, that, thank you for inviting me, and it's it's been a great chat. Yes, thank you. This is Gaming Perspectives with Saul and Jolene and good, Stephen and Stephen. <laughs> Have a good day.